Welcome to the LPP Podcast. LPP is the Life Process Program, an online addiction counseling program and an alternative to 12-step programs and support groups. At the Life Process Program, we help people with addictions to drugs and alcohol, but we also work with people with a whole range of other potentially addictive involvements like sex, pornography, food, shopping, relationships, gambling, technology, among a multitude of others. There's both a self-help version of the program and there's a coach-led version. Both are affordable. And if you can't commit to paying money for something, or if you don't want to or can't afford it now, we also have free resources at our website to help you find your way through an addiction or to help you better understand how to help a loved one struggling with an addiction. All of this can be found at our website, lifeprocessprogram.com. Beyond the program itself, you'll find blogs, answers to frequently asked questions, videos, podcasts, links to information that we highly recommend ourselves. And again, you can find all of this at our website, lifeprocessprogram.com, and you can also engage with us on social media, whether it's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Links to all of that in our show notes. Today's guest is Mindy Vincent. Mindy is an addiction therapist and a social worker, and she's the host of the podcast Therapeutic Madness, on which I was a guest recently. And she's the founder of Utah Harm Reduction Coalition. Mindy and I spoke about her history with drug addiction and how she became a harm reduction practitioner and advocate. Sadly, Mindy's sister died of a drug overdose in 2014. And as if that wasn't hard enough, her brother was also using drugs destructively at the time. And at that time, Mindy had already overcome her own addiction, and she believed that traditional treatment models were actually the recovery gold standard. But she noticed that her brother wasn't responsive to such ideas, so she temporarily abandoned her training in 12 steps and recovery programs, and she did what she thought was commonsensical. She showed her brother unconditional love and always kept an open line of communication with him. She didn't know it at the time, but in doing this, she was practicing harm reduction, something that she learned about and became immersed in later on. Happily, both Mindy and her brother are both living their best non-addicted lives, and Mindy has established herself as an entrepreneur, a professional, and a highly regarded leader in the harm reduction field. Some relevant talking points from the episode, we discussed harm reduction, family dynamics, and family communication and collaboration. We talked about drug addiction versus addiction to non-drug involvements, the role of trauma and addiction, and the limitations of trauma-based therapy and more. Now, please enjoy episode number 28 with my friend, Mindy Vincent. Like I said, I'm going to give you a proper intro before this, but maybe you could talk about, especially with respect to your work and your role in addiction and and just in the helping profession. um, Tell me a little bit about your background, just so that people can hear it, and, and what keeps you busy I know that what keeps you busy could be a, a pretty long interview in itself, but you could give a pot summary of what keeps you busy during the day. <laughs> yeah, well, so uh, first of all, I'm a lovable Leo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we start there. <laughs> but um, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker. I live in Utah. Uh, I'm the founder and executive director of the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition. And I specialize in the treatment of substance use disorder and mental health and let me think what else is there that's important in my work that's about it (laughs) I'm just in the business of trying to save lives because I've lost so many 
that meant so much to me, and I just want to help keep people alive. You lost so many that are close to you. Tell me about that, if to whatever extent feels comfortable. Well, I lost, I've lost a lot of people. So I've, I've buried over 40 of my clients that I've oh. lost. Um, but most importantly for me, I lost my sister. And so that losing my sister is actually what changed me from an abstinence-based therapist or practitioner to um, a harm reductionist. When was that? My sister died April 24th of 2014. Mm. And when she, so my sister, I, you know, I have to say, so I live in Utah where mm. the things people know about Utah are absolutely accurate. <laughs> we're a super religious <laughs> state. We're the most conservative state in the country. Where I, I think that we are still the only state who has a super majority in our, of Republicans in our Senate and our house. So um, we have kind of a different dynamic in this state than in other places. And my sister, so part of that though, is people in Utah, a lot of people in Utah, at least people who are LDS, which used to be the majority, but it's probably about 50-50 now. But, um, you know, people who grow up LDS, we don't drink, we don't smoke, you don't use, you know, you don't use drugs, you don't drink coffee or tea. Um, so all sorts of things like that, right? So my sister was very devout LDS and she was addicted to pain medication. And then she was forced to go off her pain medication, was put on Suboxone. And she wasn't ready to be off the pain medication. My sister, the first time she used heroin, died of a buprenorphine and heroin overdose. Mm. And my little brother was still addicted to opiates. And so, I mean, that became my focus. Like that's how I became a harm reductionist because not only losing my sister, but I was desperate to save the life of my brother. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. And I'm really sorry. I, I actually wasn't aware of the death of your sister. That was just interesting because I, I feel, I think I've heard your talk at a drug court conference before, but I, I know some people who have lost loved ones and then they turn to whatever sort of ideas about what, what recovery means that allows the legacy of that person to live on in a comfortable way. For you, it was less symbolic and more practical that you wanted to turn to harm reduction because you lost a person who perhaps, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like it's somebody, you know, your sister, if you would have thought about the principles of harm reduction or if that were something that were available to her, then that was something that could have been a boon for her life. And now you have this opportunity to help your brother and you know that that's the only way that is going to help. Am I getting the right beam on that there? Yeah, except for what what's funny about it is that, you know, so naloxone really became big in our state around the time that my sister passed away, right? My sister actually was on naloxone billboards here in Utah mm. uh, after she passed, obviously. But um, with my brother, what it was that made me turn to harm reduction was, you know, because actually in my mind, I was like, okay, you need, so you need to be sober. You need abstinence. We got to get you to some meetings. You need to meet other heroin addicts, you know, and I had all these ideas about what he needed. And not once did I stop to ask him, like, what do you need? Mm -hmm. And so I was doing everything that I thought was right for him to recover. And all it was doing was pushing him away from me. And that's what made me like, 
go, oh my gosh, what do I do? You know, and in that moment, that's when I thought I was like, well, I better do what he needs me to do. You know, and it's so weird to me that like that never occurred to me, not as a therapist, not as a person in recovery, because you're always taught that, you know, you need to take the cotton out of your ears, put it in your mouth and you just do what's told to you. Right. And so therefore that creates the belief in in me and in others that like, okay, now I have the answer because I have all these years sober and you need to listen to me because I'm here to save your life. And that's just a huge fallacy. You know, and what my brother needed was methadone and meetings aren't his thing. Um, and abstinence wasn't what he was necessarily shooting for. You know, I mean, he wanted to be abstinent from opiates, but I don't know that he wanted like a life of abstinence forever. He wasn't trying to live AA, right? And so uh, by trying to make him do what I thought he should do, it actually made him, you know, kind of repel away from me. And he felt like I didn't understand. And so I had to really shift what I was doing. And then that gave him the safety to come to me. And even though the first time, so I helped him get on methadone and then he, you know, he struggled with that and he started using again. And, but when he came, when he was ready to be on methadone again, because I created this safe space where I said, okay, whatever you need is what I'll do with no judgment. I just love you. And I just want you to stay alive. So you just tell me what you need and I'll do the best I can to help you. And so when he was ready, he came back to me and and my brother's actually been off opiates now for like four years. Mm. And that's what he feels like is the best for his life. That's what he wants to do is just be, I guess that doesn't describe an entire life, but with respect to opioids, that's what he wanted to do is kick him. Yeah, he definitely wanted to get off the opioids. Like he didn't I don't know a lot of people who in fact I I I don't know a lot of people who get to a place where they're like, Yeah, you know, but I still want to use opioids now and again. Not when they've gone through some of the things other people have gone through. And my little brother, he actually gave my sister the heroin that she died from, you know. So he hated himself. He hated that he mm. was addicted to these opiates. He hated that my sister was addicted to them. And so, yeah, he just wanted him out of his life. And it's not that simple. You know, it's not a a matter of like, okay, I'm just going to put him away and be done. No, like we were trying to plan a funeral and he couldn't be sick. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't have started going through detoxes. How would that have been for the funeral? Mm, I see what you mean. So it wasn't, it's not easy because there's practical aspects of life that you'd like to live. But if you're going to be tremendously sick, and I know that people say, you know, I get charged with this all the time, almost almost dismissing how shitty it is to try to kick opioids. You know, I did it and I understand it. People say things like, well, it's trivial. You know, the withdrawal is trivial. It's like the flu, but the flu is horrible. So you have to, you know, you do have to, if you're in some state of mind, as I'm sure your brother was, the reason for using opioids was to get some sort of gratification that he wasn't getting somewhere else. And then on top of that, you have to, feel like you have a flu it's just i it's really hard to put one foot in front of the other so i i see what you mean it's not not exactly a um pull the sheets off and get out of bed kind of a moment if you want to kick a drug or a relationship with a drug you've had for so long well yeah and you know i don't know if i would describe detox as like a flu i feel like that's really minimizing it Mm -hmm. (laughs) i haven't had a flu where things were coming out all ends of me and I felt like my skin was crawling and my bones were, you know, aching. I mean, I've been pretty sick before, but I don't know that I've really been as sick as somebody who's really detoxing. Yeah. The the argument that gets conflated is 
the, the whole it's trivial it's like a flu kind of a thing is i think yeah. what people are trying to say is that don't be fooled into thinking that opioids take away all of your agency and they'll they'll draw you back forever but as you say that whole idea that it's trivial because it's only this amount of sick completely ruins that idea so anyway yeah. i agree i agree it's a it's not a yeah. no matter how you spin it it's not a fun thing yeah now, how do you um i'm desperate to not lose this point but i want to step back for a minute you were you pretty well steeped in aa at the time that you decided that you needed to help your brother in a sort of him centered kind of a way yes so i was very involved in 12 steps at that time and i had seven and a half years and that was definitely the path for me in the beginning you know it's not the path that i am on anymore but that was my path for a long time and it's both spoken and unspoken in the rooms of 12 step that 12 steps is the only way to recover you know that mm. anything less is being a dry drunk so i really thought that i was doing what was best for him but i didn't realize how close i came to really harming him mm. what was it that got you into 12 steps what's interesting is uh you know one of the first disservices we do to human beings <laughs> is in our prevention right we talk about how people you know it might when i was growing up you know it would show pic pictures and videos of people being strung out on drugs you know and like once you're addicted you're addicted and that's it you know and I've, I never had ever heard of someone talking about people recovering from drug addiction, you know, in any form or fashion, whether that be you can be cured of addiction or not, you know, that part aside, I never heard somebody talk about that there were like options mm. to deal with addiction, right? Interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. So in those times when, so by the time I was, what I would definitely define as a drug, as a drug addict, I was definitely addicted to drugs. Um, I didn't even know that there was an option to do anything else. Like I just was like, okay, well, I'm addicted to drugs. So now this is my path forever. Right. And uh, I got involved in the criminal justice system. I was involved in the criminal justice system all through my juvenile, like throughout being a juvenile and all through my adult life until I, you know, stopped using drugs. But uh, through the criminal justice system, it's simply geared, it is always geared toward abstinence, like not toward abstinence, like purely in abstinence, right? right. And then right. Uh, 12 steps is definitely the modality that the courts look toward for recovery. So actually when I went into drug court, uh, and even when I'd gone into treatment before I'd gone into drug court and everything, it was very geared around 12 steps. So I didn't even know there was any other way to recover. So that's how I ended up going in 12 steps. And 12 steps is actually really great for me, you know? And when it's interesting to me that people, that some people believe that you have to go to 12 steps for the rest of your life and you have to be working with a sponsor and a sponsee. I've worked the steps so many times and taken so many people through the steps that those things, those concepts, those way of living, those ways of living, they live inside of me. They're a part of who I am. And they didn't come from Bill and Bob. Bill and Bob took them from the Oxford house and the Oxford house, like they are, those teachings have been, they're duplicated in all sorts of different ways of living, all sorts of different religions. Yeah. They're not unique to AA. They're concepts that people live by all over the world in all sorts of different spiritual capacities. So I think there's so many great things people can take from 
AA and I'm, I'm grateful that I had that path. And I'm also grateful that I had the ability to grow beyond it where I think there's so many things that limit people's ability to grow beyond that. And then they stay stuck there. So you came into it knowing that you felt like you wanted to abstain from drugs or at least just kick whatever your worst problems were in life, or at least just get your ass through the, the justice system so that you could be free of it. And yeah, so your best knowledge going to AA or 12 steps or some sort of abstinence based program was the only game. Yeah, it was the only thing I even knew of. I didn't know. And I didn't even know about it until I got, you know, into the criminal justice system far enough that it was finally where I was. They were like, OK, treatment or prison. I was like, oh, there's treatment. I didn't even <laughs> know such a thing existed. You know, wow. like, it's, it, I got I got sober in 2007. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the Affordable Care Act hadn't passed or anything yet. So right. true. Substance use treatment isn't something that was accessible. Not where I lived. You know, it's not the way it is now. Utah now has, I mean, we have so many treatment centers. It's insane. People come from all over the country to come to treatment here. Or as bad as Malibu in Florida. Hmm. You know, that was not the case when I was using drugs and I didn't know there was any other options. So if we fast forward, when you had to face your brother and help your brother in, in his problems and you were sort of desperate to do whatever you could to be a part of his life in a way that would help him thrive. That sort of, that that kind of happened naturally that you thought, all right, I'm going to take a step back and listen to what he needs. Like it was, it was clear to you somehow that it just, the way that you were trying to teach him that he needed to go through the motions wasn't accessible to him. I think you kind of touched on it, but is there something that you remember tipped you off or, or really alerted you to that fact or that feeling that you needed to sit back and listen for a minute? I think it was just, he was like starting to avoid me, uh-huh. you know, and he was, I could just feel, you know, cause my brother and I are very close and I could feel that he was like, that I was losing him, like losing my ability to stay connected with him. Hmm. And, and I was like, I mean, it just kind of, stopped me right in my tracks where I was and and it's funny because we talk about in AA when before you get sober people talk about the gift of desperation you know and in that moment I had my second gift of desperation you know I was so desperate to keep him here on this earth that I was willing to do whatever it took and that's the kind of you know I had to be beaten into that to realize that this whole time I should have been listening to him about his life. And were you practicing uh, therapy at the time? Oh, yes. Yes. And it's funny because uh, up until that time too, I'm, I was not a fan of methadone. I was like, oh, it's just a crutch. You know, people are on methadone forever. Like I remember I was at this panel. I was listening to this panel and this guy was like, yeah, I've been on methadone 15 years. And I thought, what the hell is wrong with you? You know? <laughs> and then I realized you know, when my brother got on the methadone and like it, and like within a day, like the first day he was on it, he was like stable and himself again, you know, he wasn't high, but he was well, you know, and in that moment I was, and he also wasn't craving drugs. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, I don't care if he's on this for 50 years, he's more himself than I've seen him in forever. 
you know, and I thought, what is wrong with me? How many people, you know, did I maybe send to their, you know, to their deathbed because I didn't support their path of recovery because they felt like their path wasn't good enough for me because it wasn't abstinence in AA. Hmm. And so you've, you've adopted that style of, I guess you'd call it motivational interviewing, but I mean, maybe something deeper than that, just being somebody who forms a relationship with the people you're trying to help to the extent that you can understand what it is they're asking for. Yeah, I really do try to do that. And I mean, you know, people who work in therapy know usually about unconditional positive regard and Rogerian therapy. Hmm. And I never died with Rogerian because I was like, yeah, so as people are running their lives, you're just congratulating them and giving them high fives. (laughs) (laughs) I think I understand the unconditional positive regard in a completely different way. And it doesn't mean that I don't say anything to my clients or my loved ones about behaviors that are destructive for them or could be or could ruin their lives it's because i love them that i say something about it and i tell them and no matter what you do i'm here to love and support you in whatever way you need right so the the unconditional positivity is around just be what it is to be human (laughs) that there are reasons why you probably do something but not not uh enabling some sort of behavior that's unwanted or or encouraging some i just uh, the word enable i should just retract from my vocabulary because it's been hijacked but but, i'm so uh, glad you said that i hate the word enable i do too and i it's (laughs) not the word itself is as perfectly fine utility except that now every time i use it i think of it just has so much symbolism packed behind it from the people who have used it in the past so anyway it does and it's full of (laughs) lies and fallacies like somebody's powerful enough to control someone else's behavior. <laughs> That's, exactly, exactly. But the, but the way that you're parsing it is is what I you know is the reason I might want to use it. You're you're giving encouragement. No, you're giving validation to the fact that people have reasons for behaving the way they behave, wanting the things they want, and maybe just maybe they're not insane for all of that. And at the same time, there are ways that people act that affect you, affect other people around them. And if you care about them enough, then you're going to want to bring those things up and you yeah. encourage them to make some sort of a different choice. The positivity being that, look, you're a, an overall good person. Yeah, you made some bad choices. Tell me how they're affecting you. Here's how I see them affecting other people. Can't possibly condone or encourage that sort of behavior. I wonder how you can make it work so that your life is more balanced. I think that's what you're meaning. Yeah. And I'm probably even more, a little bit more um, accepting sounding even of the behavior, you know, because especially when it was my, you know, when it was my brother, for instance, it was like, you know, Stan, I can't bear to lose you. And I imagine that inside yourself right now, you can't even bear to live with yourself, Mm. you know? So it's like, I tell people, don't try to garner compassion for the behavior, garner compassion for what's driving that behavior. Right. And that gives me such an ability to not, and, and don't take other people's behavior personally, you know? So that gives me such an opportunity to be able to step back and just be able to be there to clean up the pieces. If people are making choices that negatively impact their lives, because Mm. experiences are just that they're experiences. They're neither good nor bad. They take us to where we need to be. Like, I mean, sure. Like we have good and bad experiences, right? But if we stop judging them as good or bad and look at them as just experiences that teach us lessons that take us where we need to go, 
we can take out that good and evil part of it. Oh yeah. Now I imagine as a clinician, that's, well, actually you tell me, I would imagine that being a clinician, would be, that would be an easier thing to do and to implement than, than to a loved one, or, or maybe more natural because you have a context where you really aren't supposed to be judging things as good or bad. So the fact that you can just sort of, um, I mean, at, at the great, to the greatest extent, maybe interrogate somebody's thinking, but a better way to say that might be just sort of spell things out and talk aloud and articulate what, you know, what you're seeing, what it sounds like they're experiencing, try to reflect back in some deeply and rich reflective way, what they're experiencing, as opposed to being a family member. You know, I've talked to a lot of families now, uh, parents of kids and et cetera, who have a really hard time going from that. You know, if they were clinicians, they would probably be able to have this conversation. They know the template and everything. But when there's this emotionally salient drive, either either something deeply painful that they've experienced this person do or something that, you know, some deep fear, it's it gets a lot harder. Do you think that being a clinician, it's, it's easier to implement this way of thinking? Or do you think across the board for you, it's become a little bit more natural now? That's interesting because it just so happens that in my field of clinical work, yeah, uh, more than other fields of clinical work, people bring in their own personal experiences and biases. Mm. Right. And so, um, so that's an interesting question. So sometimes I think that gets in the way. And then at the same time, I also have different understandings of things or, you know, because of my clinical education, you know, so I would say it's like 50, 50. Well, so what do you mean? What is it? What's the challenge when people bring in their own biases? Uh, well, recovery is like the, or substance abuse treatment is the only field that I've seen that people come in and, uh, you know, we always talk about client centered treatment, but in substance abuse treatment, the first thing we do is tell people that, well, this is what's wrong with you. And this is what you have to do to fix it. You know? Yeah, yeah. And then also it's the only field where we prefer to hire people who have their own experience with it. Right. Like when you're working in cancer, you're not like, well, have you had cancer? Right. Have you been through chemo? Right. But we, we like to know that stuff when it comes to substance abuse treatment. And then as practitioners, whether that be peer supports all the way through clin- clinical staff, right we take our own personal experience and we tend to generalize it to everybody else, mm. you know, like, and you wouldn't see an oncologist do that. Well, when I had, you know, colon cancer, this is what I did and this is what I ate. And this is the only way you're going to be able to recover. You know, I mean, you wouldn't see that. He would say, well, this is the medication that works for most people, whether it works for him or not. You know what I mean? So you're saying that the, the bias that it's the clinicians bringing in the bias, not, not clients. Yeah, clinicians bring in bias for sure. Not, not that clients don't, but it's it's kind of neither here nor there because their bias is really the thing you're trying to center the therapy or the talking around. Their right. bias is exactly it's, what their life is. That's why they came to see you, right? Exactly. So you say you got into harm reduction. You kind of changed your focus from abstinence, uber less, to a harm reduction approach. I've very interestingly had three separate conversations with people who said similar thing, uh, said something similar and had three very different definitions of what harm reduction is. Uh, Maybe not very different, but different framing, Uh, some more broad, some sort of specific. So what does harm reduction mean to you? To me, harm reduction is any positive change. 
So any positive change reduces harm in relation to substance use in the field I work in. You know, obviously a lot of people apply it to sex work and other health things, but for me, it's around centered around reducing harm that is present from substance use. And that ranges all the way from just minimizing chaotic use to, or, you know, keeping somebody from dying, I guess is probably the most basic thing, but it goes all the way to abstinence. Abstinence is part of harm reduction for many, many people. They need like, especially people who use harder drugs like cocaine, meth, heroin, many of those people have to do abstinence in the beginning. I'm not saying everybody does, but most, many people I've treated for themselves find out that they need to do abstinence for at least some period of time. When do you change your frame as, as a clinician or as maybe not just as a clinician, but as a, as somebody who has a relationship with somebody whose drug use is destructive or drinking, or I guess whatever involvement that it is, when do you change your frame from reducing the harm, you know, to make sure that someone's stable making change to simply enhancing life? It, you know what I mean? And I'm not trying to like trip up semantics. I'm just, you know, the idea from somebody coming in saying, I don't know what the fuck. And then, but you can kind of frame it for them that, you know, to be, you don't have to make some heroic effort here. Maybe you can do a little bit less of this or a little bit more of this. Tell me what would work for you, what's manageable and tolerable. That seems to be one sort of way of thinking about life that is like a triage way of thinking about it. Whereas a longer term therapeutic relationship, I would think that you turn that eventually to how to make things even better. And what's the future look like now? You know, you know what I mean? How do you make that yeah. shift in, in mindset? For some people, especially people who've had problematic substance use for a long period of time, like I did, right? I didn't even think I was, I literally didn't think I was capable of making like worthwhile decisions or good decisions. Like yeah. when a lot of people, when they get sober, you know, sponsors will tell you, write down what you want on a piece of paper, where, right where you want your life to be in five years, you know? And in five years, it happened for me, like, the things that I thought that I would have at five years, I was so far beyond that. It's not even funny, you know, <laughs> but it just goes to show how limited we are when we've had so many experiences that tell us that we fuck everything up. Yeah. Right. And so I think that we have to remember that many people are in that place where they don't believe that they're capable of doing something better with their lives. So sometimes we have to meet them where they're at just so they can start building mastery and doing little things so that they can see they're competent and capable. Absolutely. You know, and any positive change is good, obviously. And I think people find for themselves that like, wow, okay, well, maybe now I can go a little bit further and then I can go a little bit further. Right. Okay. You make sure that you don't let people be bogged down by the idea that they have to continually get to uh, indifferent, like a state of indifference rather than just destruction. But you are, that framing does allow people to take a breath and realize that it's not all or nothing. Yeah, it's not all or nothing. And actually, when people are in really, you know, when people are in chaotic substance use, it's actually really easy to help somebody be in a place where they're willing to do some kind of harm reduction in their lives. Because just willy-nilly using and not being safe and putting yourself at risk for overdose all the time, most people don't want to do that. And when you repeat back to them some of their behaviors they're doing, most people are like, yeah, I guess I could get a little bit of improvement there, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we can start anywhere. I consulted with a clinician recently and um, he was asking about, he knew the answer too, but he just sort of needed someone to rattle this off of. And it struck me as a problem 
that shouldn't be a problem. Um, and it was, he had a client and it happened to be a, someone's child. He really wanted to make sure he was talking to him in a common sense, logical, harm reduction oriented way where he realizes, you know, you were using drugs destructively before you saw me. So it's not like I'm telling you go out and use drugs. I'm trying to see if we can figure out some manageable option for you that might suit you. But he was worried about, you know, talking in this harm reduction framing because of the pressure that he felt, even if he was sort of making it up. But he had this idea, this eerie idea that someone somewhere is watching him. And if he was telling this person who, who was using drugs in such a destructive way, you know, kind of a dangerous way that he could, maybe he could even continue using drugs, but just slightly safer. Well, it seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, it just seems like in any other field, like you were saying, I mean, that's just the thing you would do. It's just common sense. But somehow he felt worried to give that advice. Is that something you ever have to grapple with or that you ever have had to grapple with? Yes, all the time. And in fact, in my own recovery, when I returned to normalcy, which was at nine years abstinent, right? I That's when I returned to normalcy and I had a drink or whatever for the first time. And here we are for over four years later from then. And I'm still just fine. And I'm not shooting math or smoking crack, right? Um, but yeah, I get, I was very scared to be able to, like, I call it coming out because it was literally having to come out and say, hey, like, I don't fit in AA anymore. Like, I have returned to normalcy. And I knew people were going to be up in arms and think I'm crazy. And when I talk to people, like, there are many people, like, treatment programs that wouldn't allow me to come share my story or teach anything about harm reduction, like, teach a harm reduction group or something at their program because they believe that. I am encouraging people to go back out. And I tell people when I do like harm reduction classes at treatment programs and at my own treatment program and such, I tell people all the time, like, I, I hope that, that all of you never use hard drugs again. You know, like I, I personally have seen great things come out of meth, heroin and cocaine use. I just haven't. I've seen a lot of destruction. I'm not saying they don't have their time in their place, I guess. Yeah. And like for people who have problematic substance use, their lives will probably be better without it. You know what I mean? And uh, now I lost what I was saying. I hate that because I'm over 40, Zach, and my brain just like will take off. For I'll, I remember what you were saying, and I'll get us back. But I just realized you're you're a Leo. Does that mean that you either have had a birthday recently or will soon? I will soon. It's my birthday uh, a month from Saturday. My birthday's July twenty seventh. Oh, I thought maybe I, I thought there was a chance that I asked you to do this interview right on the day. Okay, no, well, happy, happy birthday! It's time anyway. for cancers <laughs> right now. It's cancers time. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. True. Well, I was asking you in the in the frame of a clinician, do you ever have to worry yeah. about uh, helping somebody in a with a harm reduction lens? Because oh yes, yeah. yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Because yeah, people do freak out. They're like, oh, you're enabling drug use. But I remind people that you know I don't have the power to stop or start someone's substance use. Mm. And, and I try to give it to people in this way. They say, well, you know. If I gave you a syringe and some cocaine and everything you needed to safely inject that cocaine today, would you do so? Like, Zach, if I gave you all that stuff, would you shoot coke today? I personally would not, but it's never been my Why thing. Not? But point point <laughs> taken. Right? <laughs> and so, 
when people are using substances, they're using them regardless of whether we want them to or not. And as a clinician, especially, it is my job to create a place where someone can come and talk to me about their problematic behavior and I can walk them through it. Do you know how many times I've heard clinicians say, I can't do anything to help you until you get sober? Hmm. Then what the hell are you doing here? Right. So therefore, if we are not talking about harm reduction, then we're doing a serious disservice to people, especially when for people who hold the belief of the disease concept and they're like, this is a chronic relapsing disease. Well, then don't you think we better tell people how to save their fucking lives so that they have the opportunity to relapse more than once? Yeah, good point. If it's a chronic relapsing disease, that, that seems to be a good yes. argument for doing harm reduction for the rest of your life, even if you do believe that. Absolutely, because otherwise we're saying that these lives aren't worth saving unless they're abstinent. Yeah. And you see that though in the like the recovery dialogue and language people and it's something that people who use that struggle with substances internalize, um, you know, is that their worth doesn't come until they start getting time that they don't have worth until they're sober. And that's a bunch of bullshit. People you, have worth no matter what they're doing. Right. And people's lives inherently have worth as well. And people deserve to live and people do not deserve to have health, you know, serious health consequences that they can't get resources for because they struggle with substance use. And when we know that substance use is usually the symptom of something much different, much deeper, usually something traumatic. You know, that's... either way, it's definitely an ill coping skill. I love the way that you describe when people can't, what is that that you say when, when the situation requires more than people's skill set can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a way that I explain to uh, parents, teachers to frame problems. Kids act in a challenging way when the demands placed on them or yes. exceed, exceed their capabilities. So that means that either there are skills to be learned or resources to be you know, shown to those people, but not that they're doing something inherently bad or that can necessarily be stomped out by some unilateral decision. And that applies. That's why Stanton and I wrote the book, because that applies so beautifully to the addiction concept and exactly what you said. I like that you said you as a clinician, you don't really have the power to change something for somebody one way or another. And you don't, no, I don't. you can't, that actually, that's a beautiful thing because I think part of the fear, like this gentleman who was speaking with me the other day, part of the fear there is that there is an ask maybe of a clinician to fix a person. And that whole idea, I think, is dangerous. And I think it's dangerous to everybody, the clinician themselves, because that's impossible. You know, you might get lucky and somebody might feel like under your auspices they solve their problems, but you can't give yourself the credit of you having fixed them or else the next time somebody comes through and you don't quote-unquote fix them, you're going to feel like you failed them and you have this understanding, at least that's what I got from what you just said, that that's actually not your job. Your job is to what? Listen, I guess. My job is to love people. Hmm. My job is to love people uh, and give them, I give everyone that I encounter the same, well, like, you know, depending on the avenue in which I'm seeing them, the same set right. of tools and what they do with that is up to them. You know, and I've had some some training, some experience where I might be able to offer and share and walk with this person in a way that could they can pull some helpful things from it. But that's completely up to the individual. 
ultimately the people just need to be loved and supported and given a space where they can be them their best selves and that's what my job is is to give them that space mm-hmm. and to be that person that you know when they make the wrong choice and things go to shit again you know i'm the person they could say ah i did it again and i can say it's okay let's talk about what's going to be different next time what do you think went wrong like what can we do different i'm interested help people troubleshoot because if people knew they if they knew something different to do they would do it you know but i Mm. i believe at the most basic level that people are doing the best they can you know if they if they know how to do something different they will and we have to have whatever experiences we have to have in order to learn the things we need to learn i've heard you describe addiction before as at least in your own terms as self-defeating and if you can if people can wrap their minds around that being the case with addiction, no matter what it is. I mean, you don't have to talk about it in terms of drugs or alcohol or even call it addiction. But if you have some sort of pattern of experiencing things or a relationship with something or someone that, you know, you turn to because you feel like it's your only shot at getting some sort of sensation or feeling, but you kind of know it's self-defeating, that only really leaves the option, the possibility that the person would do more or something better or more fulfilling if they could, but they're sort of stuck. I, yeah, I think people do get stuck in. And I think that addiction is an overlearned habit. And I think that it takes forms in many ways besides just through substances and alcohol, right? Like the typical substances, you know, but like people do something and they find that it brings them some kind of relief. And then, and it's not even that, at some point people are like, yeah, I just need to get loaded. It's like, people are just looking for something that like makes them be able to go, you know, to mm. even deal with what's going on around them. I don't do even know f- how much relief people are getting toward the end, especially. <laughs> right. That's a, That's what I was going to going to ask you. I know that in my experience personally, and then people who I talk to and uh, not only drugs either, but there's whatever the thing, you know, whatever the object or whatever the, um, self-defeating behavior is whatever the whatever the cycle looks like there's some extent to which it's not actually rewarding anymore and it's not even really relieving the only real for some people you know the only real relieving part of it is knowing that it's familiar it's like it just be you know to some extent it can just become the devil you know being better than the devil you don't know which you know wouldn't be so sure about that but I, i can certainly understand the principle Absolutely. And when you just do what you, you know, sometimes we just do what we've always done. We just do what we're used to doing. We do it all the time. You don't have to, you don't have to have a concept as profound as an addiction to find someone who's doing what, you know, something that's status quo, even though they know that there could be something better. Yep. I overate again today and now I feel like crap and I'm going to feel like crap in the morning when I wake up. And yet I did it again today and I did it yesterday. And I mean, it's the same kind of thing. People have all sorts of self-defeating behaviors. I think the way you're describing it, I think is the way that I think about addiction in general, which is that we, I broaden the concept so much that I really feel like we just all kind of experience it to some extent at some points in our lives. Sometimes we just experience it and can be okay with it. There some some things are part of the minutia of you know like background noise in life like what you were just saying I overate today eh, very likely I might overeat tomorrow and maybe even for a little and I might even joke about it you know and but that 
I would, I would count that within that spec, that addiction spectrum. There are forms of what I would consider on the spectrum of addiction that are, that are so minute that you might even just joke about it. You know, it's like, ah, this kind of sucks, but it's kind of funny. Or that, that gets to the extent, depending on what's going on in one's life that, you know, it can, it can really get oppressive and destructive. What do you think, what, what signs do you get that somebody is now in need of somebody like you to help them? Is it simply that they come and seek the help? Or do you think that there are um, objective signs to look out for that you would say, hey, you know, maybe this person is in need of something else and, and maybe I should suggest it to them? So sometimes it's when the person themselves comes and says, I think I have a problem. And typically what I see is by the time somebody's thinking about maybe I have a problem with this substance, they they quite possibly do. Because people who don't have problematic substances don't sit around and think about whether or not their drinking is problematic typically. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. And so I think that uh, some people just know for themselves. I think all people know, actually. I think even people that others would say are in denial. I think they know the problems that may come about from their substance use. But I also think that sometimes it looks like it's these other things and the substances are actually not the core problem, you know? And so I think that's where the denial piece comes from. Mm, yeah. But I think oh, this is, it's a tough question to kind of shorten because first of all, I think that we have to talk about substance use on a spectrum. Just because someone uses substances, even hard substances like cocaine, heroin, and meth, doesn't mean that they are addicted doesn't mean that they're dependent. It doesn't mean that it's even a problem. You know, there are people who use hard drugs um, on occasion or maybe even on a regular basis and don't have any problems from that. Yeah, I know many, many people who do so. Yes, I do too. And so uh, I would say that we have to really look at that first of all and not just assume that because somebody's using any certain substance that they have a problem. But when people have things like, you know, I'm, regularly missing work because you know i've gone out and drank too much and couldn't get to work the next day and that doesn't mean that i was had an alcohol problem at the time it means that i got too carried away last night now, alcohol really can take a toll on the body so mm. give me a break you know like i may i drank too much too fast or so you know it could be a lot of things so um but it could be things like you know i'm people are starting to miss important social events they're not showing up to things that normally they would be showing up to you know when you see substances start to take a toll on someone's physical health that that is worrisome to me because when you see it taking a toll on their physical health it's concerning that that might be something that could lead somebody to overdosing mm. you know or to having health problems that could literally put their life in danger right. you know because obviously somebody's emotional health is of course important i'm a mental health therapist of course i care about people's emotional health I can't do anything for somebody's emotional health if their physical health is gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I care very much about what somebody, how they're doing physically. Also, when somebody is just constantly looking forward to being able to use a substance or they want to be in, you know, ingesting the substance in some way, like it seems like all of the time, that as a clinician signals to me that they are having a hard time being inside themselves just how they are. Mm. You know, which to me is a clinical issue. That's that's interesting because you, you first you were talking about well you can you know a good sign is are people are people shutting out sort of the rest of what used to be a seemingly normal typical life for them 
are they are they tuning out kind of the pro-social aspects of who they are so that they can chase this experience this it sounds like you're saying a precursor to that could be is this person just sort of obsessed with you know wanting to do this drug or this substance uh because that that could it's pretty easy to see how that could turn out to be uh the former that i just mentioned right and i think that all people get uh, involved in any kind of substances i don't care what kind of substance it is because they are seeking pleasure or seeking to avoid pain and it's usually people are seeking pleasure right so then they ingest something and they find that oh it just makes me feel a little bit better right you know or they might find it makes me feel a little bit better and i don't care about this deep pain i have and sometimes it's physical sometimes it's emotional whatever right i think that's how it gets started for many people and that then you see that even though they didn't know or didn't really think that they felt terrible before because sometimes i ask people what got you started using like you know i really don't know i didn't really have this bad life but what it was is that they just felt a little better with the substance right so then it just things just start to feel a little better that way and then it sometimes gets out of hand do you make a distinction in any objective way between a drug like meth a drug like heroin and or a drug like alcohol or weed well i think that cannabis doesn't count like i truly i can't stand that people i can't stand that there's a diagnosis for cannabis use disorder it's like get the hell out of here like a 15 year old that doesn't know how to use responsibly is somebody who abuses cannabis like there's, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some adults that do it, right? But like Spicoli isn't a real person. Mm. And I have not worked with people or treated people who really had a problem with cannabis, right? Like most people who have problems with cannabis, it's actually a direct result of the criminal justice system having a problem with the fact that they use cannabis. Like I haven't seen somebody who robs a bank to get, a, to get weed. Right. I have literally, I have friends who have robbed a bank to get heroin. So to me, there is a distinguish there, there is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like there should be a distinguishment between certain types of substances. You know, I mean, alcohol is just as damaging though, to the body, probably even more so than cocaine, heroin, or meth is typically, mm. you know, I mean, I see people when I've treated people, who and I'm, I'm basing that just upon my experience like i'm not a doctor i haven't done studies about it right but from my anecdotal experience as a treatment provider i have treated a lot of like veterans from uh from vietnam right who they tend to be they tend to struggle with opiate addiction at that point right alcohol or opiate addiction it's usually one of those two um so when i'm treating oh, Sorry, my when I'm treating those folks and they've had a 40-year opiate problem, right? And then I'm treating somebody who's had an alcohol problem for just as long. The cognitive impairments and physical impairments from somebody who's been drinking alcohol that long compared to somebody who's been using opiates is significantly different. Mm. There are many people I've treated for alcohol addiction that are older, like in their 50s or 60s, where I can't tell for like three months whether or not they have early onset dementia or whether they have alcohol induced dementia because of the cognitive toll that certain substances take on you. Well, specifically the alcohol takes on your body. Right. And there is real dangers that come with certain substances that don't necessarily come with others. Right. Nobody dies from cannabis. 
Nobody ever has, nobody ever will. You cannot overdose from it. If you eat a 400 milligram cooking, you've never taken cannabis before, you might get nauseous. You know, you're certainly going to have some weird experiences, but you're going to be okay in eight hours, <laughs> right? Like that's not the case. If you do a big shot of cocaine, you absolutely could drop and do the fish and die. Yeah. Yeah. You turn, absolutely. And, People and, die and, from alcohol and benzos all the time. In terms of physical harms. Yeah. There, uh, there's some pretty clear distinctions there. I might, I might uh, ask, you know, center something on what you said about weed. You were saying there are some obvious distinctions. You know, wherever somebody's allegiance lies here, the one thing that's absolutely true is that there are patterns of behavior that seem to surround some drugs that don't for some others. Now, Correct. and maybe more obvious than that are that there are some physical effects that some drugs are going to have on a person's, a toll that they're going to take on a person uh, that other drugs probably aren't going to, even if all things equal. Um, right. To what extent do you think the the behavior aspect of things or the, the relationship people form with the drug, um, to what extent does that sort of hinge on how accepted the drug is? You know, weed, it wasn't always accepted as something that should be legal. Like it's sort yeah. of gaining traction here now. And so I wouldn't certainly wouldn't argue that, um, that's the only reason why people don't seem to have some sort of total destruction in their lives around it. But do you think that people can't be addicted to it? Or do you think it's just something that people hyper-focus on? I think people can abuse it, but no, you can't. Well, I mean, I guess if we're looking at the behavioral aspects of addiction, right? The behavioral definitions of addiction, I guess somebody could be addicted to cannabis, but like, you can't, like, I don't believe people have dependency to cannabis. I have smoked cannabis myself for decades, and I don't believe that you can have physical dependency to cannabis. Oh, okay, I see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, like, to me, I, it's just not the same. But I do want to make a super clear distinction. Like, just because someone may use hard substances, even in a chaotic and problematic way, it does not mean that they are liars, cheats, and thieves. It does not mean that they are going to engage in dishonest behaviors. And in fact, when people engage in dishonest behaviors, 99 times out of 100, it's a direct result of our broken systems that force people to have to do that. Why did people lie about using drugs? Because they had to, because it's illegal or because their family's going to shame them or people are going to try to send them to rehab or because people in general don't look real high, highly upon people who are shooting heroin. So why would somebody be honest about that? Right, yeah, right. Um, when they could be doing it in a non-problematic way, honestly. And so when you ask, like, the way people view substances, so I think that impacts how people use substances. Yeah. Definitely, for sure. And we cause people to die that way. Well, I, I'll, I'll take us halfway into the weeds and give you the option of getting us out if you want to. How about that? I was... Um, okay. It, I, I tend not to even make a distinction. Well, there is one to be made, but not, in my mind, one that's consequential enough to be worth spending too much time on. I mean, you mentioned, and probably for the sake of people listening, and that's probably better than, than what I do, but that you're, there is a, a difference between something that's be on the behavioral side of things. And that's on the physical dependent side of things. I, I just tend not to even make that distinction. So that was why I, I found first, I just found that interesting because 
a person like you and me who are having a conversation and what we know that we're doing is uh, trying to figure out where the other person is in the conversation so they can frame it the right way. That's one thing. We easily landed on something that we agree on. I think about how many conversations get fucked up because people aren't even arguing from the same framework. Like we're just speaking, people could be speaking two different languages, but even actually have the same belief about something. So I I wanted to key in on that because I think that's just tremendously interesting. I told this story on, not that I'm cool enough to have been on so many shows that I should forget, but I'm not, I don't really remember. You are that. Thanks. (laughs) I don't remember who I was telling about this, but I, I consulted with a group of educators about a kid one time and he smoked weed once on school grounds. And this is a basically pro-social kid. And he was a good student. He's a high school, uh, early high schooler. And because he smoked weed, even though he had all these good things going for him, you know, the mandate there was to get him uh, checked out by a clinician and then that clinician, whatever he, he or she says, then that's what he has to do. And then he's kind of gone through the hurdles. But uh, for some reason, whatever he was telling the clinician, he, uh, the clinician said, well, this, this guy should probably do uh, a standard treatment program. And after this guy was doing this, this treatment stuff, I mean, he had to get urine screens and just sort of, you know, after talking to this guy, it was just humiliating. He couldn't believe it. He was convinced by people that he was shitty and he was doing something wrong, but you know, yeah, he did something wrong to the extent that there was a rule and he broke the rule, but he didn't do something wrong to the extent that he really needed to go see some sort of a professional who was going to tell him how to live a better life. That gets into what you're saying. Really, a 15-year-old who smoked weed one time, you're going to give him a diagnosis for that. The, the, oh. um, the irony behind it, and I'd like to get your reaction here, is that as I started to build a relationship with this student, first of all, that really set him back. Having to go see a professional, the embarrassment around it, the harm that it did for him and his relationship with his family who now thought of him as somebody who they couldn't trust and they needed to, you know, always oh. be, it was, it was sort of disgraceful. And I, I, I remember having similar things happen to me when I was younger, but he wound up being okay. And he bounced back. It wasn't like life ending or something like that, but he got into a relationship with a, with a girl his age and he wound up, the, the relationship started off fine, but then, you know, the girl was interested in, in other people. And then he went and tried to, he was kind of chasing her around. And to the extent that his whole life was absorbed in trying to make sure that she could be in his life. And so he was chasing her and made, it wasn't like, Oh, I want to be with you because I think it'd be, I would like to uh, sacrifice part of my life to help you. And you said, it wasn't like a normal loving relationship. It was like, I desperately need you to be in my life and I'm going to do all these weird things to get it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's yeah. like a high school heartbreak kind of a thing. And it really screwed him up. Uh, nobody stopped him once and asked him how he was doing with this stuff or noticed that there was some sort of self-defeating pattern there. It always reminded me about how Stanton writes about uh, love addiction and how it's just such a great way of thinking about addiction in general. No drug involved. There were no, yeah. there was no real diagnosis to be had. He didn't have love disorder or whatever, you know, but <laughs> it was obvious to me that this relationship with this girl was so much more. I mean, his grades were slipping. 
he was like staying up really late at night and losing sleep. His uh, diet was changed and he really couldn't get this whole thing out of his mind that he needed to be with this person. And uh, after a while, finally he, you know, he grew up like most kids do and he was okay. But I went to this meeting uh, sometime during his, his senior year and people were asking, Hey, how's this? Let's call him John. How's John doing anyway? And one of the responses was, Hey, he's doing great. Remember all that treatment? And there was this huge celebration that, well, he's doing so great because he went to this treatment. He smoked weed one time, went to treatment and he's totally drug free. And that was their metric for talking about this person's success in life rather than how's he doing generally. And so I'll always remember that. And I think in that case, if you're going to give something of value, then I would consider love or relationships in that instance to be a more, you know, a more destructive (laughs) drug (laughs) involvement than any of the other drugs that some, then more destructive than somebody who would use heroin one time and say, that was kind of cool. Probably don't want to do it every day or that kind of sucked. I probably won't do it again. You know what I mean? So, so it's I like see bad, I see bad relationships be just as bad or even worse than problematic, chaotic drug use. I think so too. Yeah, if exactly. You think about the trauma that it passes on into generations and stuff. Think about kids who grow up with parents that are dysfunctional, have ugly, sick relationships. Think about how fucked up that makes kids in so many different ways as adults and how it passes on and on. Tell me that is not worse than substance use. It validates everything that you've been saying about the way you treat people clinically and and your family members and the people that you enjoy that there's not something about there's not some defined thing about the involvement that they have or the substance that they do that that provides them with worth or detracts from it it's just about how they go about experiencing life and how they're affecting themselves and you and other people around them yeah and we all have coping mechanisms both good and bad right and some have a lot less good then they have bad, right, in their coping mechanisms because how many people are even taught when they're younger how to manage their emotions, how to deal with certain situations, how to use communication, right? So where do we expect people to learn them? So all people have coping mechanisms, both good and bad. Some people's coping mechanisms are more, you know, like substance abuse, for instance. It's more outward. It has more of an impact on other people. And there's a lot of dialogue around it too that makes people go up in arms about it, right? But when you look at, you know, Twinkies and Diet Coke and diabetes, we have just as many issues in that area, but the, the same kind of shame doesn't exist, right? And we have to give people the opportunity. It's okay for people to feel good. It's okay for people to want to do things that make them feel good. It's okay for people to want to escape pain, right? So, I mean, you can't escape it all the time, right? So how do we help people find a balance and use positive coping skills as often as they can? And how do we minimize the harm from the less positive coping skills people have? Because all people have negative and positive coping skills. I can't prove it. Maybe it'd be an interesting experiment. I was just picturing, for whatever reason, my mind does this. You know, if somebody who overeats was trying to seek help with it, you know, I would picture a kid with an adult, say. And then, you know, I picture this guy crying on the shoulder of an adult and saying, can I think I'll never be able to eat a Twinkie again? I bet, I bet no adult would say, yeah, man, never again. But, right? uh, I can almost guarantee that in that same, I, I just made up this kid in my head and I'm, I'm like feeling bad for him. But, uh, <laughs> but I, 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 the same thing with, 
with drugs, it, if the question is, can I really never do a drug again? The answer largely is going to be, yeah, that's true. You, you really can't ever do it again. It it's perplexes me, truly. Uh, I, I didn't see, I, I'm not sure that that's accurate. No, no, because, I'm not, I'm not saying that's what I think should happen. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm saying, I'm saying that something I, that people are yeah. told though, it is something people are told and imagine how overwhelming that is. Right. That's what I, but that's also, what, I, that's what I mean. I, I could, I yeah. would imagine that the, the likelihood would be that if you just replace drug for Twinkie, that the reaction people would right. have is, yeah, you can't, you really can't do it again. Sorry. Well, and then really think about how many people when they, you know, they're diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, right? And they have to change all sorts of things about mm. the diet. And they don't get to eat these things that they love so much that do do something for them, that do make them feel better in the same way that like a substance does for others, right? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. I know because I've struggled with substances and I love food. And today, <laughs> macaroni and cheese makes me feel almost as good as, you know, a pain pill maybe would. <laughs> like, mm. It depends on how good the mac and cheese is. <laughs> right? But we would not, when somebody is struggling with changing their diet and they go into the doctor and they've had, they continue to eat Twinkies, is the doctor going to start yelling at them and take away their insulin and be like, you know what, if you want it bad enough, then you'll change. <laughs> mm. when, when can you imagine somebody with diabetes being treated like that? Yet that's like the standard quo for how we treat people who struggle with addiction yeah yeah i it makes me happy that people like you are out there do you think that there's a groundswell of people like you let's say in your area you're in utah are there a lot of people like-minded around that area i think it is getting better um i i definitely think it's getting better and you can see that it's getting better because drug courts used to not allow any kind of medication assisted therapy they do now um, treatment programs, uh, even ones that are court involved, they if they want to be a JRI provider, which is a policy we passed here, the Justice Reinvestive Reinvestment Initiative, if people want to be a JRI provider, they have to at least consider allowing medication-assisted therapy in their program. So you can, there's tangible things we can see that show that people are really starting to embrace and understand harm reduction. And I am regularly told by people that they're like, yeah, in theory, that sounds really nice, but <laughs> blah, 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 all the many millions of things come out of people's mouths that have no real foundational basis in them. They just are things yeah. that people have heard, so they aired them out, yep. and they're real things that affect and impact people's lives and destroy people's ability to recover. But... So, yeah, there's still those folks. That's okay. I'll keep continuing to remind them of common sense but you know pragmatism it's funny though because that's another thing people in substance use they uh because of these personal biases that people hold it also makes people who work in a scientific field resistant to look at science like you know what no 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 we're not going to take a look at that i don't think so like you should have seen dr carl hart who is like he's one of my heroes i just Love that guy and his research. And he spoke at a conference here in Utah. And as soon as I saw he was speaking, I knew. I was like, oh, people are going to have something to say. <laughs> and, and they do. You know, and, and this lady was like, you know, thank you for coming and sharing your out-of-the-box ideas and opinions. And he said, wait a second, ma'am. These aren't my, like, ideas and opinions. These are scientific facts. This is science, <laughs> you know. And, 
And it's so funny because people are so resistant to science when it goes against a personal belief that they mm. hold. Yeah, that's right. I, I like that he started to do that. He used to go ahead and take one on the chin and then just kill him with kindness. He has gotten yeah. to the point where I've, I've seen him several interviews now uh, where he will stop it and say, yeah, yeah, no, I'm not fringe. You know, I'm the, I'm the chair of psychology at Columbia university. Right. It's actually not a crazy idea. <laughs> right. It's so funny. It's just crazy. And he has a quote. He says too something about, uh, he has to be careful not to engage in conversations with people who don't believe in science mm. or who, yeah. or who refuse to listen to science or something like that, you know, something along those lines. And I was like, Oh gosh, he's my spirit animal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Cause it'll just lead him down a rabbit hole that is you know, an unconstructive one. And that's the hard thing about doing harm reduction is that because it's just so against the grain of the prohibition punishment mentality that we have in the United States, people just fight against it. You know, when I started syringe exchange here in Utah, and when I talk to people about it, they're like, you know, this lady and her crazy harebrained ideas. It's like, it's not my harebrained idea. It was somebody <laughs> else's brilliant harebrained idea from 40 plus years ago. And there's decades and decades and decades of research on syringe exchanges and overdose prevention sites, right? Safe consumption sites. People are like, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and so people, and they, an overdose prevention sites, otherwise known as safe consumption sites or whatever, are, they are the most effective intervention for preventing overdose in the world because no one has ever died in a safe consumption site in the world. That's right. And so that makes them 100% effective, which makes them even more effective than Narcan and Naloxone. Yet we won't implement them. And there's a lawsuit going on right now to keep them from opening in the United States. But yet we know from scientific evidence, grounded scientific evidence, that they are the most effective thing we have to stop overdose. That's a, that's a really good point. It's the, that argument is one that in 2016, we had a state's attorney here who knew nothing about addiction. Oh, in Vermont, where it's small enough that it's uh, instead of a district attorney, it's a, it's a whole state's attorney for a county. But anyway, um, <laughs> she's a... Uh, she looked at this research and I don't, I actually can't remember to this day where she found it for the first time. And it just struck her. You know, she, she really had no real beliefs or worldview around addiction, but she had seen tripped upon this literature and I happened to meet her. We had like mutual uh, acquaintances and she made this enormous push for a safe consumption site here in Vermont especially in the areas where people were, you know, dying in, in largest amounts. And it was impossible to have these conversations. I remember, you know, I'd write articles for local papers on her behalf. I had her on the show. We did a, a video thing for like, on the news here. There was people just couldn't, it didn't matter how much you wanted to show somebody that uh, nobody dies using these things. You know, any metric you want, to any metric you want to gauge in terms of will this be better or worse it's going in a positive direction it makes you wonder exactly what would it take how many how many years of 100 percent you know efficacy would it take for you to engage this and the answer to your point is none because it's an ideology that people have and it's this is not this is facts competing against an ideology. So there's some different way, I guess we have to 
come to grapple with these things. Yep. If people want to use drugs, they deserve to die in porta potties. They deserve to die in Burger King bathrooms. And that's what the that's what people are saying when they're saying, you know what? No, we're not implementing that because it is that extreme. Because the alternative is that people who don't have a safe place to consume consume anyway and die in alleys. They die in bathrooms. They die alone. They die in dirty, ugly places that no one deserves to die. I think that most and people, so it is an ideology. Yeah. Well, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, no, I'm. You know, I, I've come to learn that I think I think that most people, do, at, at least if they really believe that, it's tacit. Instead of you know, you do hear people. You know, you, you listen to enough people. Of course, you're you're going to hear people who actually outright say, "Let them die." Um, but I yeah. think I think that more than that, you know, the the majority of people who oppose them are sort of just delusional. You know, the idea being that it's not that we need. It's not that people shouldn't be safe when they're using drugs, but it's that what kind of a message does that send? There's the the word enable again. What kind of message does that send? And really what we need to be doing is keeping them off of drugs. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just another reason why we, that's, that's an idea we have to push out of our heads somehow, or you know, one way or another focus on livelihood and what matters instead of drugs and sobriety. <laughs> Well, and why do we have to keep people off drugs? You know, like, why yeah. is that, like, the only the only acceptable solution is that people should just not use drugs? Why should people not be allowed to have fun yeah. or yeah. not be allowed to enhance an experience? Because substances in and of themselves are not bad. It's how some people use them. And, you know, but yeah. when people have, I, I say, another thing I say a lot is, people who don't have good information make bad choices. Mm. And so if we give people good information and give people the opportunity to utilize things in a, in a safe way, in the correct context, then we, we can make a lot of change just in that way alone. Cause to think that people are not going to use substances or that people should never use substances. It's just craziness. It's not a world I would want to live in. But, no, it's dumb. I mean, you've already established for us here that substances is not it's neither here nor there. People alter their consciousness in all sorts of ways. You can certainly have someone mm-hmm. who uses heroin in as scary as it sounds, an overall adult kind of responsible way. You wouldn't know it one way or another. And there are certainly people who can use a more uh, typically thought of innocuous drug in a very harmful way. So that just sort of should be... Uh, that's just never seems to be taken into consideration. But even if it was, even if, even if we all agreed for some reason that the goal is to get everybody to abstain from drugs, um, I've come to learn this term diminishing returns, you know, people who are in marketing would understand the, the effort that it would require to make sure that everyone's abstinent from drugs, even if we could, would definitely fuck something up on the other end. You know, it would, the right. effort that it takes would, would make more problems than the problem that it solved. Even if we all agreed being absent, everybody being absent was for some reason a good idea. Yeah. And there's just so much more to, to like substance use. It's so funny. I, it's so funny that people think we actually could or should get to a world where everybody should be abstinent. But yeah. there are plenty of people who believe that, you know. All right. Not something that you I've heard you talk about necessarily in the context of uh, therapy or any kind of social work or clinical work, but I'm just I would be interested to get your take. And 
what do you think about trauma, past traumas, and what those traumas mean in terms of a person's current addiction or current lifestyle? And to give it just a little more context than that, um, you know, an argument that I have with people a lot is that when people say that a traumatic background shapes you for the rest of your life, okay, that's true to the extent that people's backgrounds shape them for the rest of their life. And traumatic events are by definition bad, or else you wouldn't call them a traumatic event. And long standing trauma would definitely then be worse than no trauma or only some trauma. But I have this idea that we can to the extent that people can overcome the most traumatic things in their lives, that they can use that as their prologue and implement it into their current life and flourish and not have to be bogged down by it. Uh, I get a lot of pushback on that and I've never talked with you about it. I have no idea what your take is. And I know that you're someone who has talked about having you know, traumatic instances, especially early on in your life. Interested to get your, your take on that here. That is interesting to me that there's people that push back and say that you can't like heal from trauma because that's basically what that equates to. And to me, that's craziness. I think that there's always some kind of maybe residual effects of trauma, but I also think that I know that the trauma gets healed. And I also know that the ways we think about the trauma change and our perceptions of it and our negative beliefs are attached to it absolutely can change right when the work is done and to me that's always so discouraging and sad when i when people say that something can't be healed or changed or fixed because Mm. it can like people are so dynamic people are so resilient and i think that you know at very least we can get to a place where we can recognize that ah, I'm having this reaction due to my trauma and this is how I'm going to respond differently to it. Couldn't be more clear than that. I was worried. I, I knew I was getting into territory that you know some people have their beliefs around this and they so, seem so deeply emotional. And I can tell from the conversations I've had that they're, they're core to their sense of self, you know, that there's an idea similar to the disease model, I guess, where people say, I'm the, I am this way and I'm this way because of my trauma. And that's sort of an identity thing for me. And I can never change. I know that because I've been told that. And, um, you know, to that individual, there's nothing I can do to argue them out of it, nor would I want to, but I do see some benefit to speaking, honestly, calling a spade, a spade here and speaking honestly about the idea that people, there's no real limit that I could tell you that you could reach just because you had a traumatic event in your life. So. It's it's refreshing yeah. to hear you say that. Yeah, and like how I I don't know I just feel like that would be what a what a sad stuck place to be to never be able to overcome or move past that and that's how I felt about addiction too like I'm not in recovery I'm recovered it's a part of who I used to be not a part of who I am. Oh, interesting. And, I hadn't heard you say that before people. either. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that's like my big thing, and people are you know, and people in AA are like, oh. You know, and I'm like, yeah, I meant to say cured. Like I'm healed of addiction. Like I don't, I don't necessarily like the word cured because to me that's like watching a wound heal or something, right? But like, yeah, yeah, I'm healed of addiction. It's I and I'm working really 
hard right now on healing from my trauma. Like I learned how to cope with it a long ass time ago. I have great coping skills for trauma and there's therapies that can be done that I think heal trauma. And so I'm working on that, but yeah, we can heal from things and how, I think that's one of the things we tell people that's such a disservice and, and unfair is to tell people like, yeah, you're always going to be sick in some way. <laughs> There's, mm. It's always going to be just something a little wrong with you. Yeah, you know, yeah. No, that's not true. That's just not true. And they, and things take us to where we are. They don't define who we are. Mm. And for some people, they do need to define who they are for some period, for some period. And if they never move beyond that, that's fine. But I just, but for people who do move beyond, I don't think they should be ridiculed. Like, oh no, you have to stay stuck in this place of identifying as a trauma victim or identifying as an addict for the rest of your life because of whatever belief people have. Really, really last question. Then I'll, I'll get us out of here. But what are the elements of your life that make you so confident (laughs) that you're not in recovery you're not you're not sitting around eerily waiting for something to happen that gets you makes you bounce back into this bad pattern you're done with whatever addiction was for you you're done with it i'm curious to know what what adds up for you to make you know that well the fact that i'm a completely different person today Hmm. than i was when i began this journey right like and also, I don't like when people say things like, oh, well, I was an alcoholic from the time I was born. No, you weren't. Like, certain everybody has certain personality traits, right? Like, for me, I don't have an addictive personality. That's how many people would describe some of my traits. But no, I don't have an addictive personality. I have a risk-taking personality. And you can still see that even when I'm not using any kind of drugs or alcohol. Like, I, uh, I like to have a lot of fun. And uh, so one of the ways that you can see that I'm a different person is just in everything that I do. Like I'm, I'm responsible. I pay my bills. I take care of my kids. I, you know, I have protective factors in my life that make me get up and want to live my best life every day. You know, I've been able to reduce risk factors in my life, Like there were factors in my life that it's no wonder I became addicted to drugs and it's no wonder I had a hard time getting sober, you know, because I had a lot of risk factors in my life, homelessness, being separated from my child, you know, being shunned and shamed by my family, being involved in the criminal justice system, not being able to get housing because I'm a convicted felon, not being able to get a job because I'm a convicted felon, like all those things make it harder for somebody to recover, right? But I've also healed the traumas of my past and I have coping skills today. I don't need to go shoot meth because I have other things I can do where at other times in my life, I did not. Like when I was 15 years old and sleeping behind a dumpster on the concrete behind a church, like I didn't have a better way to not have to sleep or eat than to use meth, you know? I mean, there's lots of factors that play into why people use substances and how it becomes problematic. And there's lots of factors that play into people coming out of it, right? But today I'm not in a position where I want to throw my life away. And in fact, I have more awareness around when I do use any kind of substances, like why I'm using them and the kind of mind from I'm in and, and making sure I'm using them um, as an enhancement instead of a coping skill. Like that stuff is very important to me. I didn't even have that kind of awareness before. Such a brilliant note to end on. Whoever you influence in your life, that's just such a powerful foundation. To, if somebody knows you or seeks you out for help, that's just such a really solid you know, awareness of life that you have that I, I think people around you are, are lucky and you sound like 
you feel lucky to have your own life. Yet you go beyond that. You're, you do social work and therapy. And I don't know how I didn't mention this at the top, so I'll do it in the intro, but you host a podcast, Therapeutic Madness. I assume that you're still doing that. Yes. We, so, we did release yeah. episodes for the last couple of weeks just because of all the things that are going on in the world. You know, So we paused for just a second, but yeah, it's still going. Maybe I'm missing out a few things. How, how can people learn more about you, your podcast, and things that you put out in the ether? So we have, uh, you can go on any of our Facebook pages or, um, you know, on the web. So uh, Utah Harm Reduction Coalition.com and TherapeuticMadness.com. And uh, we have Facebook pages with the same thing. And Rebel Recovery Utah is also us. And that's a non-abstinence-based or non-abstinence-required substance abuse support group. So people can find all of those through Facebook, through, you know, a Google search on the internet, and then you can get LinkedIn with us in any of those ways. And then the the podcast too is also on like wherever people get podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good. That's what you got to do now. So I've heard. (laughs) (laughs) Mindy, thank you so much for taking time. I know we had some scheduling difficulties on either of our respective ends, and I'm really glad we made it work. And especially for doing it uh, sort of later at night. I appreciate you giving me so much time and just such a pleasure talking to you. It is a pleasure talking to you. And I'm so grateful that you asked me to even come chat with you. Thank you. For people who don't know, Zach's one of my heroes. Like you have no idea how much it influenced me or, you know, what it did for me, period, just as like as a human being to have read you and Stanton's book, because that was the first time that I'd ever heard somebody verbalize out loud the same thing that I knew and felt inside of me that I could not say out loud because there's not one person that I knew that would have validated it. They would have said, you're crazy and you're about to ruin your life. You know, so having you, you guys without even knowing me gave me the freedom to live in my truth, you know, so I appreciate you more than you'll probably ever know. Oh man. Thank you. It it means a lot to me. Like so much of what I am and what I do and everything is because for the first time in my life, I felt validated when I read your book. Oh, thank you so much. That means really everything. And I feel the same way talking to you. It's, it's so nice to uh, bounce ideas back and forth that I usually, if I don't know somebody well, I have to, I, I'm sort of ready to defend everything I'm saying, just in case the person pushes <laughs> back vehemently. And, uh, we're, you know, we're so in line with the things that we think I can tell that you, I'm sure you had that bubbling inside or maybe, maybe even externally for a long time. So it's really cool to hear that, that it influenced somebody like you, who I, I see as somebody who's doing heroic work out there. So thank you again for giving me the time. Well, thank you for having me. 